You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, it's Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. How many of you are obsessed with job titles? I see Kelly raising her hand in the background because when we decided that in our little merry band of Jean Chatsky, Inc., that we would promote Kelly and hire somebody else, Kelly and I spent so many hours trying to decide what we should call her. Uh, Titles are, are really important. I remember when I was at Working Woman Magazine, which was my first job out of college, I was an editorial assistant, and all I wanted to be was an assistant editor. There seemed to be a vast difference between those two things, although the job was very much the same. And I wanted that title a lot more than I even wanted the raise that came with it, which considering the fact that I was making about $11,000 at the time was really, really stupid. Another title story from my past, I did a story for Smart Money Magazine in one of the early issues where I found at at Intuit, which is the company that you probably know these days because it's the publisher of TurboTax, it's the publisher of Mint. It was originally the publisher of Quicken. And at Quicken, they had a guy whose job it was to just go around the country and talk about how great Quicken was. He was the Quicken I I don't think he was the proselytizer, but he was something very, very, he was like the cheerleader in chief of Quicken. And I guess since then, or maybe since my days at Working Woman, I have been a little bit obsessed with titles, which is one of the reasons that I'm so excited to have Jennifer Barrent here with me. She is the chief counsel of WeWork, but more than that, she is the chief culture officer, which I got to say is the coolest title that I have heard in a very, very long time. So welcome. Well, thank you. We would call that person an evangelist. A chief evangelist. I think that he actually was an evangelist. I saved his card. I I (laughs) should dig it out of one of my many boxes from Smart Money Magazine. I have a couple of them somewhere in the depths of my basement. But it's nice to meet you. It's nice to see you. You're a fellow Penn Quaker. That's right. I was at Penn just last weekend. We went to Philadelphia. We went to the Penn basketball game. All I have to say is it was not pretty. Tell me a little bit about how one becomes a chief culture officer. So in some ways, it's a bit of a made-up title, as you can imagine, but it really meant to encapsulate something that is essential to WeWork. And it was a bit of a groundswell um, that then came up and... Um, Adam Newman, who is our CEO, is a big thinker, a visionary in many ways. And one of the things that is really critical to our company, as many companies, is culture. And we wanted to really show that even at the most senior level, someone is thinking about that 
at all times, um, and that we really were moving away from traditional titles to titles that were meaningful to people below them um, and should, throughout the organization. We should take a step back and talk about WeWork a little bit. I'm very familiar with WeWork because both Kelly and Hayden on my team work out of a WeWork in Bryant Park here in New York. But the world of work and where people work is changing so quickly. And WeWork has grown along with that. I mean, can you just tell everybody a little bit about how massive this company has become? Sure. So we have over 100 locations worldwide. So we're as far as Shanghai and Korea. We have 10,000 members in London alone. We're throughout the U.S. We've opened in Mexico. And we're really, we have about 80,000 members and growing and really see ourselves as a global local company. So we're very embedded in our local cultures, but we really have a global reach. Um, and we, we serve what we say is the we generation, this generation that might that be that are global citizens that care about what they work, they where they work, they care about their space, they care about their environment. I was in Amsterdam about um, a month ago, and my husband and I were walking down the street and I came across the WeWork in Amsterdam and we went in because I figured I would just check it out. And I told them that we work out of WeWork at Bryant Park and their jaws dropped because evidently Bryant Park is the cream of WeWork. That's right. So Bryant Park is a very special, it's one of the early ones in New York and it has a very special flavor. As you know, we have the entire building and there's a nice event space. Believe it or not, I actually got married there just recently. So I have a special affinity for Bryant Park as well. So for those of us who don't work at a WeWork and who maybe work at home or who work in an office or who work in a nondescript kind of a cubicle or at a long table in somebody else's office, we want to make our space a place where we feel A, productive and B, good. How do you do that having done it in a hundred different ways? Actually, part of the problem with all of those is that it's act, it's lacking the core element of WeWork, which is the community. So I actually think the heart and soul of what makes WeWork special, part of it is the design, and it's designed to be engaging, and it's designed to be a place where you're excited to go. But it's managed by community managers, and it's a membership. It's not just where you go and pay rent, but there is this idea that you're a part of a community, both your local community at Bryant Park, but also a global community, right? So you were inspired to go and visit Amsterdam because you're connected. Whereas if someone is at, you know, some landlord's building in New York and they see that landlord over in London, there's no connection there. And so part of it is developing a community. So whether you're working at home or somewhere else, that is part of it. It's both the space and being engaged, but also being engaged with some sort of larger community um, that allows you to have a multiplier effect on yourself. And that's very much a part of our ethos and, and what we provide to people. How do you think somebody who is feeling a little lonely, other than you know going and becoming a member? Sure. How can you how can you foster that sense of community? I mean, I felt that when I when I first started working from home more time than not, I felt 
um, I guess, lonely, for lack of a better word. And I started structuring my day in a way that I would have events, whether it was a run with somebody or a coffee with somebody or, you know, something, a doctor's appointment where I would just see another human being. That's the key, right? So what WeWork provides or what we would recommend is exactly what you just said, is that go join a soccer team and play with you know, have an outlet with those people there, join a group that is in your field. So whether it's media and technology or um, arts or legal, but that the idea is that you need that human connection and that creates community. And so if you're working at home, you need to find a way to go out and interact with other people because we do think that that's actually important. Um, the in-person being together is is actually motivating and energizing to people. Have you done productivity studies? We have not in terms of productivity, how much output you get, but we have done studies on our success of members. And we do find that by creating community, um, over half of our members do business with each other, um, that it's easier to find you know, what you need. It's more efficient that way. So there are certain types of things that we find that human connection really helps. Um, but we haven't done sort of is, is a lawyer's output more productive in, uh, you know, a traditional law office or a WeWork office. You were recently on a, a panel and you said that when it comes to motivating millennials or a workforce that is heavy with millennials, recognition is more important than reward. I know when you look at the people that um, gravitate toward Oh, we work. They do tend to be millennials, though they're not all millennials. But how does this work? And can you explain what you were meaning a little bit? Sure. So one of the things that we've found when, and this is, this is really in my role as chief culture officer. So when I took on this role, we spent a lot of time looking at organization and saying structure and philosophy is important, but also what are, what's important to our employees, to our team members. And what we found by listening is that especially the millennial workforce, the younger workforce, but mission-driven people, people who are, what again, what we sort of call the we generation, but people who are we work are really mission-driven. They believe in our mission. They believe in our values. And I think a lot of people in various jobs believe in the mission of that company. But what they want is they see reward as different than recognition, which is also different than feedback, right? So I think typically when when you see a standard review process, at the end of the year, you get some big review by your manager, and then they say, and great job, and here's your bonus. And it's all tied together. And so the recognition, the reward, the feedback is just one big package. And what we've unpacked and what we really believe is that those are all different things. So, for example, we're doing our quote-unquote annual review process right now, and we really just call it feedback. And what we've done is we said, everybody, you get to pick the people who are going to give you feedback. And so if you pick people who like you and they just say, great job, you're not going to get anything valuable for your own development. And so everybody pick, and you can only pick four people, because the other thing is that as a reviewer or as someone giving feedback, you don't want to be overwhelmed. And the people who should give you feedback is one person who's not your manager, who's more senior, 
you've worked with, one person who's in your department that you've worked with who's a peer, one person not in your department who you've worked with, and then someone who's worked under you. And that's your quote-unquote 360, right? But those are four people that we think ask those people for feedback and then have them give that to you. And that is not a review. That's actually feedback on performance. And so people are able to think very deliberately, who would I like to know how I'm doing? I love the way that they perform. I respect them. How do they think I'm performing? What can I do better? What do I do well? What do they like about working with me or not like about working with me? And the idea is to create a transparent and open dialogue about feedback all the time. Similarly, when we think about recognition, it's really a not just a job well done, but we as a company have achieved our goals. And these are people who have helped us do that. And here's this amazing job that they did. And here's recognition for them. And then on top of that, if we as a company have achieved our goals, we can actually start to reward people. And it doesn't only have to be with cash. There's all different ways to reward people. And if you think about those things as elements, we really feel that it's a different way to approach a generation that isn't just looking for a transactional nature from their employer. Well, and I'm listening to you as not a millennial, but, you know, a 52-year-old woman thinking, I'd like that kind of feedback in my life. You know, I'm heading to the point in the calendar year where I have those kinds of how are we doing discussions with the people who work for me. And we try to do it more often than not. And I, I try to have those same sorts of discussions with my clients. But I, you know, I, I, I think it would be in all of our benefit to think about who are the two or three or four people that I could buy a cup of coffee and just say, what could I do better? What am I doing well? What can I learn from you? Exactly. And that's the way I think about it is that feedback is a positive thing because you can, without the information, you don't know what you're doing well or not well. And I very much welcome feedback. That's a big part. And I'm very clear when I give feedback to other people. And then there's an open channel for people to give me feedback. And that's really what we want to create throughout the organization is a place where feedback is valued because it's valuable to you. Do you ever worry that it will be taken as too critical or do you have a way of saying it so that it is taken better? So yes and no. We've done, you know, training and talking about it. One thing that we think is special about WeWork is that it is a non-competitive place and it's collaborative. So, for example, we do these all-company meetings and we have people come and I'm presenting and, you know, people are sort of in the back and I'm like, oh, come up front. And then I said, you know what, after me... So an employee who's never spoken before is going to come up and present. And I could tell you, I'm okay with people in the back, but it's very disconcerting. It's much warmer for you to move up. And all of a sudden, when it was about one of their team members who's never presented in a big organization, everybody moves in. It's very supportive. They want that person to succeed. I think in the same thing, when people think about feedback, you want your teammate to succeed and you want the feedback yourself. And if you see it as non-competitive, non-threatening, but really something of value that you're giving each other, then I I don't think it becomes, um, you know, because it's not a zero-sum game, because it's not driven by bonus, but it's not driven by you're going to get a promotion. It's actually part of the, uh, you know, the, the social contract you have with your with your teammates. 
I want to continue this conversation talking a little bit about flexibility at work. But before we do that, let me just tell everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We deserve to live the lives that we work so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with WeWork's Jennifer Barrett. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career or looking for a place to plant yourself during the workday. Again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. And Jennifer, I'd also love to tell you that if you're looking for another podcast, you should check out one of our favorites. It's Reveal. It comes from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal has a team of investigative reporters constantly digging to expose problems that most people know nothing about. Their reporters spend weeks, sometimes months or even years getting to the bottom of the story. And along the way, they come across the most intriguing characters. Sometimes they're good guys, sometimes they're bad, but by the end, they've revealed what's going on and who's to blame. So check it out. You can find Reveal on your local public radio station or on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere you download podcasts. I am happy to be back with Jen Barrent. And I'm wondering, you know, we work to me seems like the kind of place where people dip in and dip out. And it's flexible in terms of hours. It's flexible in terms of what you wear. There's beer on tap 24-7. Not that I've sampled it. But (laughs) what are your thoughts on structured work environments versus a four-day work week or being able to wear whatever you want whenever you want? So I actually think those are in two different buckets. I, I actually say at WeWork, we, we have almost no rules, right? So there is no dress code. So you will be talking to someone. And what's what's interesting about no dress code is that it's not informal or formal. So you will be talking to someone in the summer and they will be in shorts and T-shirts. And then you will talk to someone mainly in finance or legal, and they could be in a suit. And no one's out of place, right? So there's this amazing sort of sense that you wear what's comfortable to you and what's comfortable for your role. And that's non-judgmental. We also don't, um, the retail part, sort of the community management, they have hours because the members have hours, but there's not an hours. You don't check in and check out, you know, in, in headquarter or in a non-retail. Um, you have people who are building buildings. They might, um, the weekend before an opening, work the entire weekend and then just have a natural dip because we open the first of the month everywhere. So there's a bit, there's there's an inherent flexibility in what we do. One of the things that is very lucky for where I am is the company is 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 in its infancy. So we, um, the founders Adam and Miguel, had really from day one said this is a hundred year company, and a hundred year meaning infinite. But that's sort of the biggest number you can say without sounding too crazy. Um, but it's it's not. It's built so that. Um, employees can stay a very long time. And we're in year six. And our average age of employee is 28. So what we're trying to do is say, in the next 10 years, from 28 to 38, how are we the company that 
keeps all those people. How are we the, 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 the company that for me, who's 44 stays till I'm 54, right? And that you, you're able to, because we're so new and we're at the beginning, really start to stretch out that career path. And that's more how we think about flexibility than necessarily sort of the four day work week or this, but that you can have this very, very long career that dips in and, and dips out. Um, when I was at a law firm, there was a partner and she once said, you know, there was a lot of talk, you know, as I've in the past 15, 20 years of to have it all as women. And she says, you can have it all, but not all at once. And that has always stuck with me as you need an ebb and flow and you need to really think of your career in a very long term fashion. And that to me is the most important is to really be able to stretch the way and make a mutual commitment that we commit to our employees and our employees commit to us that we can really have the a fulfilling career at one at one company. Have you noticed as chief culture officer that culture is taking on a greater importance at other companies too? And I'm thinking of companies that I've done some work with like PwC, for example, who they started a student loan repayment program. And I, I've done some research on Deloitte where they decided that every new project they would go through a a process where everybody would be able to get their own schedule taken care of. So if you wanted to be at your kids' games every Tuesday at 7.30, the client would know and you would be able to make those things happen. And they did these things in both cases to be alluring to millennials, to be good places for millennials to work. But in my mind, it all sort of comes under culture. That's right. And I think culture is important. I mean, if you even think about where people live, um, you know, why is New York booming in terms of people living here? It's the culture and however you may define that, whether it's diversity or the arts or the food or great sports teams, whatever it may be, there's something about the culture here that's that's magnetic. And that's in all different places, right? There's a culture that's magnetic to people. You have smaller cities that are um, exciting. You have the world where people are drawn to see different cultures. And I think where you are day to day is very important. But we see that on the panel that you mentioned, um, someone from Walmart was there who um, is a senior person in their people operations. And she talked about at Walmart that they are now running classes for their store managers. And then they would graduate from those. And some of these people had never graduated from anything. They hadn't graduated from high school, certainly not from college. And then they would come and they'd bring their families and they would have a cap and gown and they would get a diploma. And it was incredibly moving. That is culture. We want to have that same impact. I listened to that. I was like, we are spiritually aligned with Walmart, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we want to do for our for the people who work for us is to provide an opportunity that they might not have otherwise had. And that's really a culture of a mutual, we're invested in you, you're invested in us. And how meaningful is that to their employees? I love that story. And I've, I've you know, repeated that about it's a dozen times already. It's a wonderful story. Yeah. No, it's a fantastic story. So the changing workforce. Jen Barron, thank you so much for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was a great conversation with Jennifer Barrent about how different our work lives are today. Mm-hmm. And Kelly has joined me in the studio, everybody. By the way, I'm Hello. just, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking to the wall <laughs> here. You've never had a traditional 
work life. I haven't. I do not know what the Monday through Friday nine to five grind is like, but that's okay because that's what I wanted in the field I chose to go in, which is journalism. So the idea of being at a desk all day, every day isn't attractive to me. So that's what I like the idea of journalism, running around, chasing a story, attending events, being mobile, being nomadic, as you said, like I can do that. But I know I understand a lot of people can't. And we should tell everybody, I mean, our foray into this communal office space was really you. I mean, you were doing a really good job. I did not want you to quit. And I, (laughs) I heard through the grapevine that you were lonely. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and so that's why we started looking for that. Absolutely. And I, I didn't want to quit either. And that's why I approached you. I I worked from home for about the first year, mm-hmm. about the first year on the job. And I just noticed myself progressively becoming disinterested and unhappy. And I knew it wasn't the work itself. And so I looked to my environment and it was like a switch, like a light switch. When I started working at WeWork and having a place to go, working around other people, I learned that while I am introverted in some ways, my creative energy is drawn from working around others. So in that way, I am an extrovert. But I think those are important questions to ask yourself, no matter what type of job you have, and looking to see if that is hindering or helping your productivity. Because it's such an issue for so many of us these days. Absolutely. All right. Well, we don't want to shortchange anybody's questions. I know you pulled some questions out of our email box and off of Twitter and Facebook and I don't know where else they came from this week, but what do you have? (laughs) Our first one is from Facebook. Megan messaged us. She says, hi, Jean. I just have to say I love your show and it has completely transformed the way I deal with my money. Oh, thank you, Megan. We love hearing that. Her question. I have two credit cards with high balances that are still in the no interest period. I'm pretty sure I'll pay them off before the interest kicks in, but I wanted to know if I should pay them first or put aside a rainy day fund of $1,000 or more first. I would pay them first um, because if that no interest period goes away, it's just going to cost you a lot of money. And if you pay them down and you have an expense, you could put it on your credit card if you need to. So I would aim to do all of the above as quickly as you can and put aside that emergency cushion, $1,000, $2,000, so that you don't have to put those expenses on a credit card. But you got those 0% interest cards for a reason. You got them to do a job for you to clear out this credit card debt. Let's not get in the way of your mojo. Let's just finish the job. Mojo. That's such a great word. It's a good word. It's a good word. It's Aust- a good word. Austin Powers. Our next question is from Nicole. She says, I stopped paying my credit card bills and other debts almost three years ago due to extreme financial difficulty. The total debt is around 10000 I think I should file for bankruptcy, but my husband told me not to because all the debts I have have been written off and my credit will improve. Is that true or should I file for bankruptcy because my credit is shot and will not get better? It doesn't sound to me like the time has run out on all of your debts. Those debts will remain on your credit report for a lot longer than three years. They'll they'll remain there for seven years, eight years, depending on what we're talking about. And so what I would look at is potentially, if you can amass a small sum of money, trying to negotiate with your creditors to pay a smaller sum on the balance that you owe and have them report to the credit bureaus that you've actually paid these debts in full. It will still show up on your credit report that that you had this trouble 
And But it will also show up that you dealt with this trouble. And in the long run, I think that's the better thing to do. This is called debt settlement. It's something that credit card companies do all the time. You don't need to file for bankruptcy in order to do it. But what you do need is to come up with a small sum that you can offer to give the credit card companies immediately. So if you owe $10,000, if you could come up with a 1000 to $1,500 and offer the credit card companies that, take it or leave it today, they have to agree in writing to report that you satisfied your debt to the credit bureaus. But then you could just be on your way with this. I think that's a better way to go. And if you're thinking, how much should I offer them? Understand when they wrote off these debts or when these debts were written off, you may be dealing with collection agencies and you can offer them even less than you offered the credit card companies to begin with. They sold these debts for pennies on the dollar pennies on the dollar. And so you don't have to offer them a whole lot of money to get them to jump at this deal. As far as the question of bankruptcy is concerned, you may also want to sit down and talk with a credit counselor, a not-for-profit credit counselor. You can find one through an organization like the NFCC, the National Foundation of Credit Counselors. They have a very robust intake process where they go through an interview with you and basically tell tell you if you need to file bankruptcy rather than taking other measures that you can handle yourself. And so going through that process, which doesn't cost anything, really may be a good move for you as well. Thank you, Nicole. And thank you, Jean. Sure. Good luck, Nicole. Um, Let us know if there are other questions that you have that we can help you with. And for everybody else, if you've got questions, drop me a line. It's uh, Gina, com or Jean Chatsky on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, LinkedIn. You ask, I'll find it. There we go. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. In our Thrive segment today, inspired by our earlier conversation with Jen Barrent and the fact that it's a new year that may or may not come with looking for new job opportunities, we thought today's Thrive could cover that one pager that could make or break your next move, and that is, of course, your resume. And note, even if you're happy at your current job and you're not looking for the next best thing, it's always a good idea to be interview ready with a resume that's up to date. Recently, our friend, also our past guest, Darren Kagan, you can hear her on episode 30. She sent us an article by Katie Simon. Now, Katie Simon is the founder and chief consultant of the site More Money for Me. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? She works there with millennials to craft resumes to help them land their dream job interviews. And and we thought we'd share a few of her top tips here. First up, and I love this one, she says, think of your resume as an outline for the job interview you want to land. You get to control what goes on your resume, which also gives you some sense of control over what questions interviewers might ask you. So think about how you want that conversation to actually go and then play up the necessary experience and the skills. Two, for clarity, Less is more. I want all those Sex in the City fans to remember when Carrie is planning her first wedding with Big, that would be the big one, and ruthlessly cuts a guest off her list. 
That's how ruthless you need to be with your resume, with the types of information, the sections you include, as well as the words and the phrases. Simon says, for every line on your resume, ask yourself, will this improve how the company sees me? You want everything to fit comfortably on one page with no more than three or four subsections for any given section and no more than three bullets per subsection. And just to reiterate that point, my husband, Elliot, as many of you know, hires people for a living. He he hires magazine editors and art directors, and he says nobody's resume should be more than a page long. Nobody's. So if yours is, ask yourself why it needs to be that long and then make it shorter. And third, results first, skills second. When you are pulling your resume together and you're making those bullets lead with results. So instead of just saying that you managed the company's Twitter profile, say that you increased the company's social following by 20,000 in only two months. And since you won't be able to fit how fabulous you are all on that one page, and make sure that you include where they can find even more information about you, your website, your LinkedIn. We're assuming, by the way, that you've cleaned all those places up. Okay, let's review. Even if you're not on the hunt for a new job, it's a good idea to be interview ready with a resume that gets you in the door. Think of that resume as an outline for what you want to do next. Play up the experience and the skills that make you the very best candidate. Remember that less is more and lead with your best results. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Kelly, as always, to our producer, Beth O'Connell. Thanks to Jennifer Barron for a great conversation. We are, of course, grateful to our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And if you like what you hear in this new year, please take a minute, leave us a review on iTunes, and share this show with women that you think might like it, too. We'll talk soon.